Welcome to Money Matters, proudly brought to you by Alexander Forbes. Hello, I'm Martin Hesse and my guest is David Moore, Head of Alternative Investments at Alexander Forbes Investments. The topic of this talk is investing in alternative investments. David, can you um, define alternative investments uh, for our listeners and maybe um, have a look at the various types of alternative investments you can get? Sure, Martin. Um, the, the alternatives are really comprised of kind of two broad categories of, of investments. And um, the first one is probably the most encompassing and, and most diverse is private markets which really speaks to um, pools of investments that are just not listed or not traded. So they don't have a daily market, daily mark to market or share price. Um, and they include things like um, private credit, private equity, venture capital, and, and real assets. And real assets can be comprised of things like infrastructure um, and property, just in the unlisted space. That's sort of the private markets component of alts. Um, and as you can get, it's quite broad and quite diverse. Um, the, the second and largest component, or lo the second most large component of uh, alternatives is hedge funds. So hedge funds really are, are constructs that aim to either amplify or reduce market volatility of returns or volatility of returns in your in portfolios through using derivatives and various um, financial instruments in pooling investment portfolios. Those are sort of the, the largest and most institutional grade um, alternative investment categories. You also get um, a, a subcategory within alternatives kind of defined as collectibles, which include things like art and wine and stamps and, mm. and vintage cars and things like that. But I, I think that's something that's a little bit more um, bespoke, so to speak. Um, so these types of investments, um, they, uh, they all uh, have one thing in common is in that they're, they're not uh, as regulated as say, for instance, unit trust investments, which are regulated by the Collect Collective Investment Schemes Act. And, um, and so in the past, uh, well, from my point of view, they haven't really been appropriate for retail um, man in the street type investors. Um, is that changing and um, what are the reasons for that? Sure, Martin. I think, I think the, the inappropriateness is really born on the back of, of I think, two factors. So their relative illiquidity, they're not like your listed shares or bonds where you can buy in and out, and, and their complexity. Um, they're, you know, as mentioned earlier, they're a little nuanced and a little different to what you'd conventionally get on listed exchanges. So that's kind of driven that uh, inappropriateness um, for the man in the street. I think the change has come on the back of your traditional asset categories for quite a long period, um, delivering quite modest or below par returns to investors. Specifically, if you look at South Africa, where you've had muted GDP growth and, and weak macros driving kind of, um, kind of headwinds into equity markets for quite a long period. You know, if you're looking at traditional asset class returns over a long period backward looking, they haven't been that hot. And so you as, an, as, an, as, a, as the man in the streets or somebody that wants to invest more broadly um, needs to, to do that, invest more broadly and look at alternative options that can give you returns that can be inflation linked and ultimately protect your capital and preserve 
wealth um, for the long term. So that I think that's one of the key driving forces behind people looking more broadly and looking into alternative investments, um, because it really just speaks to a broader opportunity set that has the potential to deliver improved return outcomes. Um, so if you are looking more broadly than just listed, listed uh, shares on the, on the JSE, why, why is it that, uh, that the JSE appears to be shrinking and um, that, that there are all these um, private companies um, springing up um, and quite innovative ones at that, and they don't seem to be going the listed tier route? Yeah, I think the contraction in listings and, and floating of debt instruments via corporates is, is really a cost-benefit exercise when it comes down to it if you're looking at the underlying corporate. You know, you, you, what is the cost that you incur in, uh, in being a listed entity? The regulatory, admin, audit, oversight costs are not to be scoffed at um, in terms of how much cost you need to incur to be a listed entity on any one exchange. Um, so you know that's the cost component. The benefit, of course, is having your share price publicly quoted and um, in so doing you can hopefully improve publicity and drive value creation and create you know momentum behind the growth of the equity value of your business but if you look at what that's meant over the last decade for many listed corporates in in South Africa for example is it has been marginal limited um, value, equity value growth um, but you're still incurring all those costs to be listed you know and so mm -hmm. It makes it doesn't make sense then you for you to be you know listed for the long term if you're not evidencing that value creation to your shareholders and i think furthermore being a listed entity typically your ownership um, construct is somewhat fragmented you know you're held by the man in the street you're held by the you know the asset manager you're held by pretty much anybody that wants to buy your stock um and if you're unlisted or, or not listed on an exchange typically you do so or you're more often than not owned in quite a concentrated fashion by a couple of shareholders that that either prescribe to you know what you're doing and are kind of motivated and aligned to push your business in the right direction mm. and so you know companies i think are increasingly becoming aware that you know maybe less is more in terms of number of shareholders and having a quoted share price doesn't always mean that you know it's going to grow the value of your, of your business over the long run mm. so if if you are a private company and um, you, you don't have the, the same uh, regulation that a listed company would have under the JSE, um, so there are risks there um, for the investor. And, and so would the advantages of, of investing in such a company, do they outweigh those, those risks? Sure, I think I think um, I think we probably both know that um, listing is typically not necessarily the sanctuary or the safe place to to any risk of, yes, of sure. loss. Yeah. Because I think we've seen we've seen a few corporate wobbles in the listed space, um, which kind of haven't uh, you know haven't done well for shareholders and and pension funds and the like. So, you know, listing is not necessarily um, totally correlated to lower risk. I think the the perception of high risk in the, in the alternative investment categories is not always um, is not always a, you could say fair comment. The liquidity, yes, the, the liquidity risk you need to bear. But if you think of some of the assets, that kind of gives you a good example as to why the benefits outweigh the potential disadvantages of illiquidity and lack of of a daily price. You know, if you if you're funding um, you know an infrastructure asset, for example, you're funding a solar farm that's being built 
yeah, that's generating energy on a daily basis, which ESCOM's paying, and that tariff that ESCOM pays for that energy is backed by Treasury. So you know your credit risk is is guaranteed by the national government. Mm. And over, over over and above that, your return stream, you know, net of the costs required to operate that solar farm over a long period of time, is all inflation linked, and, and is partially monetized too via via orderly dividend distributions over decades. So. If you think of that, that is a singular example of, of an unlisted or an alternative asset that is actually quite bond-like in its nature once it's built and constructed um, and much lower risk and low volatility than your, your traditional equity assets, for example, which bounce around all over the place when you have injections of liquidity into markets. So, you know, that, that's a great example of where the benefits would outpay some of the disadvantages of, you know, not having a daily share price, having potentially less regulation. But in the instance there, you have much more active ownership, um, tangible benefit in terms of assets that create a meaningful difference in the ecosystem or environment in which you actually live uh, and operate. Okay, so you can't really lump all alternative assets together and say they're all high risk, because as you've just mentioned, there are some that act almost like, like bonds, so relatively low risk. Exactly. Um, uh, we can, uh, that leads us on to impact investing. And that, I mean, uh, I think um, reading a, a recent article that you wrote, um, that's, that's quite a, um, an important part of alternative investing. And, and it's, it's beneficial not only to the investor, but to the economy as a whole. Can you give, maybe give some examples of impact investing? Sure, Martin. I think I think the private market asset asset category within alternatives is probably the most endearing to to impact investing um, and actually delivering not only good commercial returns but actually tangible social um, and ESG related outcomes for investors. So, and and why I say that is because these asset categories or this asset category um, being private markets typically see practitioners or owners of assets being much more active owners, so they they own assets. In majority or controlling fashions and, uh, and once you do that for an extended period you typically then create meaningful change in the underlying assets you know you're not just a single or couple you hold a handful of shares on a listed corporate you actually own a large component of a business and you can drive value creation and change and in so doing what you typically see and a, and a great example there is if you look at some you know if you consider some of um, the asset categories there within that space so SME and inclusion, for example, in the economy and the ecosystem through financing them in, in the private markets is, is an easy one. Typically, SMEs are very underrepresented in, in the listed space. Mm. You know, and an SME attracts capital from a private equity firm, for example. That SME then grows and develops with that private equity firm um, across the impact spectrum. So be it from an environmental perspective where they they get off-grid, for example, or use green, clean energy solutions in the way that they generate the energy for their daily operations to governance enhancement by putting in place sort of the transition plan from, say, an SME that's family-owned and operated into an into a architecture where you have proper governance and oversight from an audit risk and board perspective um, to social outcomes, for example, improving um, both gender and racial transformation within the underlying SME to make it more wholly reflective of, of the demographics of our country. So it gives you, um, that gives you a little taste as to what you typically get in the private market space, for example, in the, in the SME subcategory where you've got active practitioners making meaningful change and creating lasting impact. 
Mm. So in a way, um, by investing in, in, in these alternative investments, um, you, you're investing in the real economy, uh, investing in, in uh, companies that are starting up that are beneficial to the economy, that are um, uh, impacting in all sorts of different ways. 100%. A lot of the, the private market world, which is, again, is the, probably the largest subcomponent of alternatives, is extremely diverse in terms of its the number of the types and number of assets that you interact with. You know, for example, we both know that the JC's probably got you know, 200 investable counters, but if you look at the latter stats, um, in SA there's about 10,000 SMEs with revenue in excess of 100 million rand in South Africa. So it gives you a sense as to the depth and breadth of the investment universe. That's only the SME category. If you then think of all the energy projects and solar and wind farms that have been built and mm -hmm. developed over the last decade or so, and are going to be developed going forward, you know, these are all tangible investment opportunities that are not reflected on exchanges. Um, that speak to some of the opportunities that that's out there. Um, so uh, for a, for a retail investor, I mean, uh, what would you recommend? Um, as a, as a portion of his or her portfolio should be in alternative investments. And how, how does one access those through uh, investments like unit trust funds? Sure, so from a, from a portfolio perspective or product design perspective, the illiquidity is real. So it's something that you do need to bear in mind when you do invest in these assets. So this is not something to speculate in and invest in tomorrow and want to trade out of in a month's time. You know, that's not typically what you need to be, you know, you know, be bearing in mind when you're looking at alternatives, specifically the private markets. It's longer commitment periods. So if you, you know, have short-term liquidity needs, then you need to factor that in into how much you want to put into a portfolio like this or portfolios like these. Typically, I would suggest something in the order of, um, you know, 5% is probably manageable in, in a broader portfolio sense, but that's very much person-specific um, and you need to, you know, tailor that to your own personal needs. Um, you know, if you've got a much longer-term time horizon, you could you'd be more aggressive in that space. Mm -hmm. um, the means of access, however, is a challenge. Unfortunately, in the unit trust or collective investment scheme world, there's very little design feature that's um, enabled there to be able to make alternatives more accessible so be it on the hedge fund side or on the private market side there's very limited um you could say explicit catering for either of those asset categories to be included in these structures so you know, i think the lack of the lack of explicit reference to them plus the the current design of the cis structures around need for daily pricing at fund level um, and liquidity on quite a short-term basis Mm. makes it quite challenging for those structures to accommodate these. So there's, there's almost needs to be a little bit of rethink around how to, to best rework those in the best fashion to obviously make sure that investor interests are safeguarded and that there's no, um, there's no sort of, um, you know, problems created through, you know, less frequent pricing or liquidity, but at the same time, you know, to ultimately allow the retail investor to broaden their investment opportunity sets so that they can benefit um, by these asset categories. Um, Cisco has now recently, fairly recently made allowance for hedge funds. Is, is that a way to go? Yeah, I think that's a good start. So I know there is a lot of, there's a lot of work being done by CISA um, and various industry bodies around 
tabling the best means of inclusion. Um, and hedge funds as a start. Um, hedge funds, of course, are products that can potentially, if well-structured, reduce your portfolio volatility, protect your downside through the cycle. And so they can be very value accretive to an investor portfolio. Um, they're a little bit less real economy focused than say the private market asset categories. And so if you want to, you know, if you want to invest in, you know, the affordable private school down the road from you or build a retirement accommodation, um, you know, for your ultimate retirement, you know, the private market asset categories, that that's probably the best place to go. And I don't think um, that's totally there in terms of its um, status of inclusion in, in these structures. Um, but I think there's a lot of work being done around the scenes to try and enable that. Um, the other way to go, I, I'm thinking now, would, for a retail investor, would be through his or her retirement fund. Um, but then, you know, you don't you don't actually have any say in what the retirement fund invests in. But uh, yeah, could could you maybe elaborate on what retirement funds um, can do in this space? Sure, sure, Martin. So, of course, they're governed by Regulation 28, and there have been some really positive changes in that world around improved you know you know greater the regulatory limits in the alternative asset category so current they currently stand whereby you can do private equity up to 15 percent of your portfolio hedge funds up to 10 percent of your portfolio so you're about 25 percent into alternatives is permitted um and so within your retirement fund um typically uh, it's a much easier means of access. Um, you throw your monthly contributions, you effectively can you know, invest 20, up to 25% of them into alternatives and capture the hidden and private market asset category. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's probably the, the most developed component of the market at this stage. And even there, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to mobilize more capital into this, these asset categories. You know, there are still, the majority of retirement funds are still quite well underweight those limits as mentioned okay well i think we've pretty well covered it unless unless there's anything else you feel you want to mention that you may be doing on, on alexander paul's side yeah no i think from our side martin you know we're active investors in alternatives we actively allocate to hedge funds and private markets we have our own bespoke programs and products um you know very much a believer of the in the real asset kind of allocation thesis and that we need to be doing more then um, providing our members or our clients members rather with just a member statement, but actually evidencing that you know, your member credit built something lasting and tangible that um, both you and generations to come can evidence and enjoy and benefit from. So I think that's the thesis behind how we're thinking about these, this asset category. That was David Moore, head of alternative investments at Alexander Forbes, talking about investing in alternative investments. This is Martin Hesse signing off for Money Matters, brought to you by Alexander Forbes.